Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today on our weekly roundtable is back. We tackle the white supremacist murder of 10 black people in Buffalo, New York. The present day and historical context of these types of attacks, the great replacement theory, the broader national and international political implications. White supremacy is embedded deeply in the United States, but it goes beyond the US borders. Indeed, it is global. Here is what a public safety official in Canada had to say. Let's play that clip right now. American friends, and particularly um, the victims and the survivors of these senseless uh, murders, which were driven by uh, acts of uh, hatred and fear-mongering and anti-black racism. Um, And, you know, I think what our uh, American friends should know is that they are not alone, that Canada is not immune uh, from these uh, from these challenges, uh, we have seen in the past uh, that uh, shootings have stemmed from uh, hatred and, and and acts of racism. Uh, for example, at the Quebec City mosque shooting, so uh, which I visited uh, within the last uh, couple of months, where I had an opportunity to speak with uh, Muslim leaders in that community, who even though we're five years on, are still very much traumatized uh, by those of acts of hate, which were perpetrated by by guns, uh, including uh, those deadly AR-15s. So we have to do more to eliminate uh, gun violence, and we also have to do more to uh, eradicate uh, racism, which has no place in our society. Absolutely. It is indeed a global problem. Also, our panelists discuss the latest news from the war in the Ukraine. This as at least 1,700 Azov fighters who have been associated with neo-Nazis surrendered their position in Mariupol. They had taken refuge in the Azovstal steel plant. And UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson is encouraging the Ukrainian Prime Minister to keep the war going. This, as other leaders in Europe, are calling for a negotiated end to the war as the U.S. steps up military funding for Ukraine and Finland and Sweden putting in a bid to join NATO, a move opposed by Turkey. Meanwhile, there are increasing worries about arms smuggling as the flood of weapons to the Ukraine continues unabated and attacks on public education in the United States as the movement against critical race theory continues also some news from south of the border. Our panelists are Laura Carlson, Jackie Goldberg, Dr. Gerald Horn. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Christina Onestead. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky says Russian forces have turned the Donbass region into hell. During his nightly address, he said Russian troops have killed many people in the Cherniv region in northern Ukraine and that Russia was in a, quote, deliberate and criminal attempt to kill as many Ukrainians as possible, unquote. Russia says it's captured more than 1,900 Ukrainian fighters who've been holed up at the Azovstal steel plant in the port city of Mariupol. The group of seven nations and global financial institutions are providing $19.8 billion in aid to bolster Ukraine's public finances. German's finance minister Christian Lidner told reporters the goal is to ensure Ukraine's financial situation doesn't impact its ability to defend itself from Russia's invasion. Meanwhile, the U.S. Senate overwhelmingly approved a $40 billion package of military, economic and humanitarian aid for Ukraine Thursday. The 86 to 11 vote came three weeks after President Biden had requested a smaller $33 billion version. Every voting Democrat supported the measure. Eleven Republicans opposed it, including Kentucky Republican Senator Rand Paul, who single-handedly forced a delay in the vote until this week. I wonder if Americans across our country would agree if they had been shown the cost, if they had been asked to pay for it, if the supporters of foreign aid for Ukraine had been honest with Americans, they could have instituted a Ukraine war tax. I'm sure it would have been quite popular. By my calculation, each income tax payer in our country 
would need to pay $500 to support this, 400, this $40 billion, which by some accounts is a down payment and will need to be replenished in about four months. The legislation contains $24 billion for weapons, equipment, and military financing for Ukraine, restoring Pentagon stocks of arms sent to the region and paying for the U.S. reinforcements sent there. The rest includes economic aid to keep Ukraine's government functioning, food programs for the countries that rely on Ukraine's diminished crop production, refugee assistance, and funds for Ukraine to investigate war crimes. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in the U.S. have approved Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine booster for children ages 5 to 11. The decision opens a third COVID-19 shot to healthy elementary-aged children, just like what's recommended for people 12 years and older. Earlier this week, FDA Food and Drug Administration regulators authorized the extra dose to be given at least five months after youngsters last shot. CDC's advisors endorsed it during a public meeting Thursday. President Joe Biden kicked off a trip to Asian nations with a stop in South Korea today. It comes as North Korea has launched some 16 rounds of missile tests and is seeing its first reported COVID-19 surge across the unvaccinated population of some 26 million people. Among the issues on the table for Biden are seeking ways to show tighter relationships, rethinking national security aims, launching a new trade framework, and improving the availability of computer chips after a debilitating shortage. Biden's trip will end in Japan next week. The Senate passed a bill aimed at easing the baby formula shortage for families participating in a government assistance program known as WIC. The program accounts for about half of all formula purchased in the country. The House passed the bill the day before. It now goes to President Joe Biden to be signed. It would make it possible for families to redeem WIC vouchers for whatever formula brand is available. The shortage came about after the largest factory making baby formula in the country shut down amid safety concerns. Congressional Democrats now want the Biden administration to appoint a national strategy coordinator to address the shortage. Mary Sherman has more. Senator Patty Murray says the blame lies with the company that recalled the formula, the FDA, and the government for a lack of interagency communication. Nobody did their job here. The White House announced the first flights to deliver infant formula from Europe to the U.S. will happen soon. For Pacifica Network and Public News Service, I'm Mary Sherman. More than 5,000 firefighters are battling multiple wired fires in dry, windy weather across the southwest. One has destroyed dozens of structures in western Texas and another is picking up steam again in New Mexico. Evacuation orders remain in place for residents near fires in Texas, Colorado and New Mexico. Dangerous fire weather was forecast to continue through today, especially in New Mexico, where the largest fire has burned for more than a month. The governor expects the number of structures that have burned to rise to more than a thousand. That fire has scorched more than 473 square miles. And cases of monkeypox have been detected in Europe and North America. Scientists who have monitored numerous outbreaks in Africa say they're baffled by the diseases spread in the West. Cases of the smallpox-related disease haven't previously been seen among people with no links to Central and West Africa. But in the past week, Britain, Spain, Portugal, Italy, the U.S., Sweden, and Canada have all reported infections, mostly in young men who haven't traveled to the African region. One theory British health officials are exploring is whether the disease is being sexually transmitted. I'm Christina Onestead reporting for Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Our weekly roundtable is back. I would now like to welcome our panelist, Laura Carlson, director of the Americas program. She works with Just Associates, an international feminist organization. She's based in Mexico City, where she is a regular contributor to America's Updater, Foreign Policy and Focus, Counterpunch, and several Spanish language publications. She is also a television host and commentator on globalization, the drug war, immigration, and gender issues for various international news outlets. Laura, welcome. Thanks, Margaret. It's great to be back. Yes, and indeed it is. Jackie Goldberg, we'd like to welcome her. She is a governing board member for the Los Angeles School Board District 5. She is a former member of the California 
California State Assembly. Jackie Goldberg had previously served as a member of the Los Angeles City Council. Before being elected to the council, she served on and was later president of the Los Angeles School Board. Jackie Goldberg, welcome. Thanks for inviting me. It's great to be back. Yes, indeed. And Dr. Gerald Horn, the Morris Professor of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. He's written more than 30 books, including The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. Also, the award-winning book, The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. Dr. Horn, welcome. And I hear you have yet another book coming out. Welcome and tell us about that. Yes, the new book is The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow and the Roots of U.S. Fascism. Pay attention to those last few words, the roots of U.S. fascism, because as the late Tom Hayden used to suggest, I'm afraid we're about to enter a quite dark winter. Yes, it's interesting you mentioned Tom Hayden. He was on my mind this morning as he was one of our panelists here. And I remember Tom saying that. And indeed, I had visited with Tom actually a few hours before he passed away when he was in hospital. And he again repeated his fear about this dark period we are uh, to enter. I, I don't know where he got that, but he absolutely did. I suppose looking at world of Affairs and the handwriting on the wall. But what we're going to do, we're going to start our roundtable discussion with what happened in Buffalo, New York, just a little over a week ago last Saturday and the present day and historical context of these types of attacks. I think all of the listeners know by now that an 18-year-old white gunman dressed in army camouflage shot 10 people to death, 10 black people, and wounded three this past Saturday. And two of the three he wounded, by the way, were black people. This uh, Buffalo is located in upstate New York, and the crime is being investigated as both a hate crime and an act of racially motivated violent extremism. I thought just to give us some context here, it would be good to hear from some voices from Buffalo, New York. And here is what they had to say this shortly before President Biden and the First Lady Jill Biden visited Buffalo. Let's go to that clip now. Once again, we see a horrific act of violence and violation to a Black community. And we have to ask ourselves, what is happening in the life of an 18-year-old that he drove hundreds of miles into a very specific community and did such a horrific, violent, violating act. And he has completely, completely shattered our community. I think we also need to be coordinating a plan of what will things look like a month from now? What will things look like six months from now? And where are we gonna address the fact that social determinants of health have already been a problem in our community, hence why we only have one grocery store that's accessible to our entire community? So how are we gonna address the lack of those things in our community, understanding that when those things are already lacking and now tragedy hits, you leave people with huge gaps. It was our elders that fought so hard to get a grocery store in this community, in a community that's been suffering for decades um, from lack of access to fresh and healthy food options. Now I think since COVID that we're starting to pay more attention to lack of access to healthy food, but it's been something that this community has always faced. If we're not talking about the deep systemic racism that's plagued the city of Buffalo for decades, we're completely missing the point. And I'm, I'm pleading with the President of the United States to pay attention to what's happening in the east side of Buffalo. You know, people are saying this is not Buffalo because this person didn't come from Buffalo. But to me, this is Buffalo. This is America. This is an American problem. Um, white supremacy and systemic racism are American problems that we all have some level of complicity in because we allow it to go on. So like if we're not hearing those kind of messages coming from the top, then to me, it's not really being taken seriously. And I think President Biden needs to speak to those problems. This has such a greater impact than just the trauma and the loss of lives. This was people's livelihood. 
There are people who worked at this Tops and they will not be able to go back there. There are people who rely on this grocery store and they won't be able to go back there. And the state of this community shouldn't have been like this in the first place. So we need to think about not just that this was a sadness, not just that this was just a tragedy, but what are we gonna do after that to make sure that the story of this community in the future is less devastating. All righty. So we heard from some of those voices in Buffalo. And Laura Carlson, we are going to start with you because frankly, as a person of African descent, you know, it's like, here we go again. I was just reading an article where a black man actually was saying, how can I not be angry, frustrated, grieving, mistrusting, suspicious, sad, and tired? You know, a lot of people are grieving here, but you also heard from the Canadian public safety minister about the threat of white supremacy there. I mean, it's not only a national problem in the U.S., but increasingly a global one. Laura Carlson, your thoughts? Oof, Margaret, it's it's so hard to talk about this because of the weight of what this means on both the national and the international level. And because we can be so confident now that this is something that will happen again and again and again. And as we speak, it's being planned somewhere with someone being targeted. And we know now what those targeted groups are. Uh, Yes, indeed, it's global throughout the world. What we've seen are a series of responses similar to Canada's. Um, There's a sense that This is a U.S. problem in that it's well known now that there's a coordinated movement within the United States that the Donald Trump presidency laid the the groundwork for supporting and in many ways legitimizing that movement that contains these elements that are given a space, formally given a space. Uh, of white nationalism that's willing to carry out acts of domestic terrorism and attacks like this one. Uh, uh, After a similar attack several years ago, I went briefly because it's all I could stomach down that rabbit hole of the internet of of, uh, what these networks are and uh, how they're using the great replacement theory the the idea that European white people are being replaced throughout the the world, uh, the ideology that what needs to be done is the annihilation of people of color throughout the world, the absolute supremacy under anti-democratic systems of European descendants of white people, even obviously countries where they are the minority, and that's why they have to attack democracy at the same time, uh, because they see the cards in that sense. Um, And the profound vein of of, uh, misogynism and patriarchal thinking that goes along with this. So we found that white nationalism is not a good enough term. We're playing catch up still in terms of our information about how these networks exist and in terms of our capacity to conceptualize them. White nationalist describes racism clearly at all non-white people and nationalism refers to this campaign to take over a territorial aspiration of the movement to take over countries politically and uh, socially through culture wars and the rest of it. And yet it leaves out that patriarchal element to it that is, that's so, so important. If you look at the psychological profile of these killers, and I don't think we should spend too much time there because this is a social phenomenon, but the interesting part of it is that many of them have posted also rants against women. They have, there is now a whole, a whole ideology called incel about enforced um, celibacy that is feeding white male rage, saying that they no longer have access to their entitlement of white women's bodies because of men in color and because there's a, a, a deficit. There's this whole thing about uh, white women not doing their duty in terms of breeding sufficiently. And we're, we're all, all of a sudden dangerously close to the handmaid's tale in this respect. All of these ideologies are formalized and are part of what's behind 
these killings, and yet they're not very well known, and there certainly has not been a governmental response. On the international level, uh, we look at these, these responses, and then we look at the way that they are being integrated into the Republican Party. And I also was thinking about Tom Hayden, because several months earlier, he said there's two things that could happen before the Trump administration. Of course, you know, the Republican Party could fall apart or it could just go all out, whole hog neo-fascism. And of course, what we're seeing is the latter. You know, they're embracing these the conservative pub political action conferences now going to be held in Budapest under Bud Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban, who formally is a white nationalist authoritarian. He is becoming the model for how governments themselves can not only mainstream, but put into power and maintain power based on these kinds of the restriction on, in his case, on anti on Muslim immigration, the formal restriction on LGBTQ plus rights, the open anti-democracy with packing the courts and everything else. And so he's become the hero of Trump formally, publicly of, Trump, of Tucker Carlson and of this whole this whole part of the of the Republican Party that Liz Cheney formally criticized and say, I can't believe we're even going there. That's the situation we're in right now. And we need to really look at it carefully and in a much deeper level, because we know this is going to happen again. Right. And, and Jackie, thank you, Laura Carlson. And again, for lifting up our colleague who was our regular here on the weekly roundtable, Tom Hayden. He seems to be on the mind of many of us today and on many other days. But Jackie Goldberg, the, this great replacement theory, Jewish people are actually being blamed for the ones orchestrating this great replacement theory. And we know that other adherents of this view includes the killer in the 2015 murder of nine Black people in the church in Charleston, South Carolina, the murder of 11 Jewish people in a synagogue in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in 2018, the 2019 killing of 51 Muslim people at two separate mosques in New Zealand, the 2019 killing of 23 people, the vast majority Latino in El Paso, Texas. Your thoughts on all the Eki Goldberg? Well, of course, somebody has to organize the conspiracy after all. And who better than the Jews? You remember when Charlottesville, they were screaming, the Jews will not replace us. We will not be replaced. This was a big, big part of what has been happening. This is not news. You know, this is not new. The, the, the whole, I remember the uh, 1962 essay uh, in the New York Times by Baldwin. He said, um, not everything that is faced can be changed. But nothing can be changed until it is faced. And that's the problem. We're not facing it as a nation. The, the, the leadership of the Republicans will not do anything about having war, war, weapons of war in the hands of people. It does nothing. It is silent in this. It silently sanctions this situation. Uh, you know, and, and we have to remember that this this is this existential question about what is the nature of the United States is really always coming to fore. And that is, are we a white nation or are we a multiracial, multicultural democracy? And of course, the the white supremacists say we're a white nation. We started as a white nation. We should remain as a white nation and we should do everything we can to be sure that we only have a white nation. I think we have to take a look at who fans the flames of this stuff. Uh, people like Turk, uh, uh, Tucker Carlson, who, uh, who I thought was particularly disgusting during this whole issue at Buffalo. Um, but also, I think we need to take a look at and remember that there is a historical precedence to all of this. Remember that at the end of the Civil War, what happened five days after the so-called end of the Civil War was the assassination of Abraham Lincoln by John Wilkes Booth. And what did he say in his manifesto? He said the country was formed for white, not for the black man. Okay, so this is not news. This is not news. We've been having this problem, actually. We had an entire war called the Civil War over race. 2.4% of the entire population died as a result of that fight over race. In 1924, Neither the Democrats nor the Republicans re were willing to have a proposal passed to 
condemned the Ku Klux Klan. In 1980, Reagan started to kick off his past presidential campaign in Neshoba County, Mississippi. What do we know about Neshoba? It's the place where Klan members were murdered. Uh, Klan members murdered the civil rights activists of James Cheney, Andrew Goodman, and Michael Schwerner. So this is not news. You know, Trump told the Proud Boys, stand back, but stand by. You know, we're looking at a situation in which we have an existential question, which is, will the leaders of this country on left, right, and center actually decide that this nation is a nation that is multicultural, multiracial, and, and therefore we have to treat all equally in a democracy? Or are we going to continue to see, continues to see, that people will be silent, that no changes happen? You know, when, when after Sandy Hook and we were killing babies, they wouldn't change the gun control issues in, 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 in Washington, D.C. because the Republicans wouldn't vote for getting rid of weapons of mass destruction, <laughs> literally uh, army weapons being used. Uh, you know, we're, we're talking about a situation in which this is not going to stop. I think the quote that I saw in the newspaper that disturbed me the most was a woman in Buffalo whose mother had died who said that the thing that angered her the most was is that here was a white person who had already killed 10 people and the police sat around and discussed with him him dropping the gun. She said if it had been a black person without a gun, the person would have been dead in the first five minutes. And that tells you everything you need to know about racism in America, she said. So I think it's really it's really clear that if we, I'm going to take another quote from Baldwin in, in uh, my favorite of his books, The Fire Next Time. He said, when it comes to is this, that if we who can scarcely be considered a white nation persist in thinking of ourselves as one, we condemn ourselves to sterility and decay. Whereas if we could accept ourselves as we are, we might bring new life. I think that's the last thing I need to say on this. Absolutely. And I love your Baldwin quote, Jackie. Nothing can be changed until it is faced. Got to use that one quite a bit there. And a reminder, we should all go back and read Baldwin. But Dr. Gerald Horn, you were on earlier in the week uh, with Sahara Simmons, a, a civil rights activist, a, a snicker who was part of Freedom Summer where the Cheney, Goodman and, and Schwerner were killed, the, the civil rights workers that Jackie Goldberg referred to. And uh, also now civil rights attorney Ben Crump just this past Thursday has vowed to sue everybody that was an accomplice to the Buffalo supermarket shooting, including the gunman's parents, right? He also said intend on going after the gun manufacturers, the gun distributors, and anybody else who was an accomplice. Um, and uh, Dr. Horn, the other thing is, is that apparently he live streamed this. This thing is still circulating. And there were some people who I suppose are, are part of this white supremacist movement. I mean, some of it are just looky-loos, but are really doing what the gunman hoped that he will indeed become a hero of their movement. I mean, all of this is very scary. And I'll have to say, I was in conversation with Dr. Pinel Joseph yesterday as we marked the May 19th birthday of Malcolm X and mentioned, Dr. Horn, your comment as a Black person, a Black man in particular, every time you leave your house, it's like playing Russian roulette with your life. And he absolutely agreed and underscored that. But Dr. Horn, your thoughts on all this? Well, first of all, with regard to replacement theory, uh, this idea that uh, Euro-Americans are being replaced by people of color, uh, that's ironic since settler colonialism began hundreds of years ago with European invaders replacing the indigenous population. That is the original replacement theory. And then there's a perverse irony that this took place in Buffalo. Recall that Buffalo was in the news a few months ago when you had a Black woman Democratic Socialist, India Walton, who was poised and primed to become mayor, but the Democratic Party establishment went into hysterics, destabilized her campaign, and put in one of their favorites. Now, 
when you have the destabilization of these strong class-based movements, as represented by India Walton, that serves as a breeding ground for the rise of the kind of racist sectarianism that you saw a few days ago with regard to this massacre. And the worst news may be on the way insofar as, just as the U.S. Supreme Court is currently poised to strike down Roe versus Wade, they're also poised next month to strike down gun control legislation in the state of New York. These past primary elections on Tuesday did not necessarily deliver good news. Republican Party participation was up. Democratic Party participation was static. And right next door to you, Margaret, in the state of Idaho, you've had the rise not only of the John Burke Society, which we thought we had buried in the 1960s, but the three percenters of right-wing militias of various sorts who were seriously contending for high elective office with their slogan being, believe it or not, build a wall around Idaho and make California pay for it. <laughs> that is to say, uh, they're objecting to the influx of folks from California into Idaho, although many of them were LAPD officers who share these right-wing uh, beliefs. The conservative U.S. meeting in Hungary was mentioned. And what's remarkable about that is that as the right wing continues to globalize and internationalize, on our side, we see a conflicting and contrasting tendency. As we speak, the leader of the Congressional Black Caucus in Washington, Congressman Gregory Meeks of Queens, has crafted a bill that passed the House 415 to waiting to arrive at the Senate, where it very well may pass must, which calls for the punishing of African countries who do not go along with the U.S. line with regard to Ukraine. Most oh. of these African countries that will be punished are the countries like South Africa who are most likely to speak out on our behalf, like people under the sea. And instead of reaching across the ocean to grasp their hand, what we're doing is slapping their hand, which is obviously a misreading of the current political moment, not to mention a misreading of history. And Buffalo, once again, was a prime candidate for this kind of massacre because it has endured deindustrialization. It used to be a center for steel and auto production. Uh, many of those jobs fled. And what's interesting now that in the Tuesday primaries, the question of jobs fleeing to China was a major issue. It will be a major issue in November. It will be a major issue tomorrow when you have Australian elections. Australian elections are oftentimes a harbinger for what is to happen in U.S. elections. But neither the Democrats or Republicans are telling us that one of the reasons why these jobs fled to China, there was part of a geopolitical deal with China, where, whereby China would turn against its allies and the socialist camp. Uh, not only the Soviet Union, but Vietnam, with which it waged a very bitter and brutal war some decades ago. And the payoff was the building up of the People's Republic of China, which has created this juggernaut, which Mr. Biden is now trying to arrest by traveling to Asia, where he is sitting as we speak. I should also mention, too, that just as there has been justifiable consternation at this impending overturn of Roe versus Wade and the castigation of Justice Alito for relying upon judicial authorities from 13th century England and 17th century England to justify patriarchy, well, the left does the same thing. The left salutes a slaveholder's revolt in the 18th century is creating great leap forward for humanity, when scholars and writers like Nicole Hannah-Jones and myself included begin to rail against this particular nonsense, then we are subjected to ridicule and attack, not least by forces on the left. And all this is doing, as I suggested at the top, is preparing the fertile ground for the ascendancy of a unique form of U.S. fascism. Wow, a lot to take in there. Just fantastic from all of our, our panelists and, and Dr. Horn underscoring problems within the left. I mean, there is an alternative summit being planned of the Americas in Los Angeles. And I recently found out that the people they have invited to speak on Haiti are exactly people on the wrong side, some of whom were part of the supporting the coup against President Aristide. So this is another problem in the left, a kind of imperial 
playlist, Solidarity. And I'll be doing more about that issue on Sojourner Truth, really exposing that particular situation. But I digressed a little bit there. We are going to take our station break. And when we return, the Ukraine and also what the heck is happening in our schools, public schools under attack beyond K through 12. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Something's got me down I will stand my ground Don't just stand around Don't just stand around As we took off running, I ducked and hid for my life Because I was afraid for my life And I hid by the first car that I saw My friend, he kept running And he told me to keep running because he feared for me too So as he was running, the officer uh, was trying to get out of the car And once he got out the car, he... uh he pursued my friend, but his, his weapon was drawn. Now, he didn't see any weapon drawn at him or anything like that, us going for no weapon. His weapon was already drawn when he got out the car. That is J. Cole, be free. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. If you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us there. Our handle on Instagram and Twitter at So True Radio. We're also nationwide and worldwide in SoundCloud. And today in the U.S., we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in that state of Idaho. As Dr. Gerald Horn says, there's some proposal to build a wall around Idaho. And internationally, I'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Mexico, just south of the imposed border there. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. It is our weekly roundtable, and our panelists are Laura Carlson, Jackie Goldberg, Dr. Gerald Horn. We are now, as we are wrapping the show up, going to discuss the latest on the Ukraine, and also we want to fit in some of what is happening in our schools. Well, let's go to the clip actually from Al Jazeera about the Azov Battalion denying their neo-Nazi association. Before running that clip, I just want to say the U.S. has increased the amount of money, deepened its commitment to Ukraine by $40 billion. This is in addition to the $13.6 billion in emergency assistance for the Ukraine that Congress approved in France, giving the total of U.S.-Ukraine aid to a historic $53 billion since the start of the war. Most of that is military assistance. There is a, a lesser amount going for economic and humanitarian needs. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson met with Ukrainian President Zelensky in Kyiv, announced that the UK will pledge more than $130 million in sophisticated weaponry to the Ukraine. He also, by the way, encouraged the Ukraine to keep the war going. But other government leaders in Italy, France, and Germany are publicly calling for negotiations to end the war. The German Chancellor, Olaf Scholz, spoke to the Russian President Putin and then tweeted, there must be a ceasefire in Ukraine as quickly as possible. And meanwhile, Finland and Sweden, they want to join NATO. This is continues to be of great concern to Russia, who's been complaining about NATO cozying up to its borders. And the Turkish president, Erdogan, has saying that he wants to block this. He expressed opposition up to now to Finland and Sweden joining it. So there we go. It's really hard, as you all know, to find out all of what's happening, not only in the Ukraine with the war, but also the anti-war movement in Russia. There is an anti-war movement that is greatly repressed by Putin. And, uh, you know, so we have to have a really balanced view here as much as we can about what's going on, about that illegal invasion of the Ukraine and all the atrocities that we have witnessed and, and all of the various geopolitical reasons behind it. Let us go now to this clip because there's been some talk about the neo-Nazis within the Ukrainian military. Let's go to that clip now from Al Jazeera. All before years. Some call them neo-Nazis, others say they want of Ukraine's toughest fighting forces. The Azov Battalion was formed in 2014 during the Russian annexation of Crimea. It began life as a volunteer force which then became part of Ukraine's armed forces with public links to far-right groups. In 2016, the United Nations accused it of violating international humanitarian law. In 2019, 
40 U.S. Congress members unsuccessfully tried to designate the Azov as a foreign terrorist organization. During this war, they've become the main fighting force in the besieged southern city of Mariupol. We began by asking them if they were a neo-Nazi organization. Sorry to say this, but the image of us as neo-Nazis was created by Russians in 2016, after Azov liberated Mariupol from Russia. Our volunteer fighters then became part of the Ukrainian army. There's a video on the uh, National Guard of Ukraine Twitter account, which clearly shows some of your fighters uh, greasing bullets with pig fat with the message, Dear Muslim brothers, in our country, you will not go to heaven. Go home, please. You will not be allowed into heaven. Here, you will encounter trouble. Go home, please. That kind of thing makes you look like neo-Nazis. We have Muslims from Azerbaijan fighting for us. Let me give you one example. In my unit, we have a Muslim from Azerbaijan. He is fighting like us. But when people think of the Azov Battalion, particularly internationally, they do think of neo-Nazis. You guys have an image problem. How are you dealing with that? We have Russian propaganda, a fifth column that spread all over the world. It's not a surprise that they created this neo-Nazi image for us. So now we are speaking publicly. Come talk to us and you'll see we are not. The Azov Battalion understands it has a neo-Nazi image problem, but to change it will require support from the rank and file, many of whom are suspected of having far-right links. Russian forces are just a few kilometers from here, but the Azov Battalion have another fight on their hands if they want to change their image from being a neo-Nazi organization to being a nationalist fighting force. Perhaps the bigger fight, though, is within their members internally and how that will go down. Imran Khan, Al Jazeera, Kiev. Thank you for that. And Laura Carlson, we'll, we'll start with you. We've got a little over about 10 minutes left for this discussion. And we do want to fit in some news, Laura, from south of the border. So if we could spend a bit of time here on the Ukraine, and then we hope to get to the south of the border and really love to hear something from Jackie also about what's happening in public education. But Laura, let's go to you on the Ukraine. Just wanted to give our panelists heads up about our time. Laura. Thanks. Yeah. The time always goes so fast. So here, what we've seen, what we see in Ukraine is that the military logic has taken control 100% of the entire process. The uh, bid right now for Finland and Sweden to join NATO is again a provocation, as well as creating the friction with the Turkish government. And we see the contradiction that Sweden has formally a feminist foreign policy. And this path of friction at this time and moving toward supposed you know, military defense bloc is really the opposite of what anyone would define as a feminist foreign policy. In Russia now, there's a formal move to annex the southeastern region after subduing the resistance in Mariupol. Uh, there's uh, the New York Times talks about it today. They're taking control of the infrastructure. They're calling it the Russification of the region with the ruble being introduced and school curriculums changed. Then on the other hand, we have this acceleration being promoted by the US government. So the end is that there, it's not only what is being done, but it's what is being not done. There's talk that the, that the negotiations for any kind of peace have completely collapsed. The United Nations is pulling out its hair, calling for people to go back to the table. And yet there seems to be almost no momentum there. Germany's calling for a ceasefire. Italy presented a proposal, and yet uh, Russia has had a proposal on the table for a long time now that the Ukraine government has not even looked at. At the same time, there's this huge increase in arms, as we always say, and there's accusations now of arms struggling. Just very quickly, to talk about south of the border, uh, there's the U.S. the um, the U.S. backed organized America summit coming up, and at that summit of the Americas, it's falling apart as we speak since Biden government announced, not formally, but let it be known that they would not invite Cuba. Venezuela or, or Nicaragua. Almost immediately, the Mexican president, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, announced he, he was just in Cuba to um, affirm the friendship between the countries on May 7th and 8th. 
that he would not attend. And so this created sort of a chain reaction. And we now have um, from the right wing who are afraid of being criticized for their anti-democratic governments, Brazil and Guatemala have announced they will not attend. And on the left, in addition to the three countries excluded and Mexico and Bolivia, and uh, we have, you know, we have a whole long list of progressive governments, Honduras, Argentina, Chile, Peru, and possibly CARICOM with 14 countries as well. You do the math, that's 30, 25 out of 35 countries in the region that are now possibly not attending. So it's always been a showdown of neoliberalism at these summits. And that's what we're seeing again this, this year with a very interventionist, strategy on the part of the Biden administration that's dividing the continent. And again, this effort to impose uh, a kind of alliance of neoliberal states that's being strongly rejected by a new Latin America. Thank you for that. Laura Carlson fitted in very nicely there. And Jackie Goldberg, similarly for you, your thoughts on the Ukraine situation. And also, if you can talk a bit about this really worrying attacks on public schools in the U.S., Jackie Goldberg. Yes. Well, first, you know, I think the real question in terms of United States policy right now is what exactly is our goal? Is it an end to the conflict to a settlement that makes the sovereign Ukraine happen? Is it having a relationship at the end of this between the U.S. and Russia? Or or is the U.S. now trying to weaken Russian permanently? Are we trying to destabilize Putin or have him removed? Does the United States really mean to have him held as a an accountable as a war criminal or are we trying to avoid a wider war it's getting less clear what our goals are and i reason i say that is because we are in a very complicated part of the war now because it's now becoming more like an active war rather than just shootings and bombings from far away and we're beginning to wonder as to the public schools. Well, we are in really quite a big mess. Declining enrollment began with the pandemic. And what that means is where are the kids going? In places like California, some of that happened because when we were online, parents did not put kindergartners and preschool kids into school thinking that being online with a three or a four or a five-year-old was not a useful thing. So we ended up with, in many states, having a kindergarten and first grade class with kids very far behind. And now the right wing uses that as an excuse to say, get your kids out of public schools. We're going to get vouchers back out again. We're going to give every kid a chance to go to a great private school. Public education is dead. Then you have the people attacking public education for doing critical race theory when, of course, critical race theory has never been taught in any public school in America and never will be. It's a graduate school exploration of institutional racism, and we don't do any of that. So what is happening is, is that schools are under attack and parents are being encouraged to believe that they should decide what each decision is to be made as to the curriculum so that, no, no, we're not going to have ethnic studies. We don't believe in ethnic studies. Or yes, we're going to have ethnic studies. No, we're not going to talk about the racism at the foundation of this country. It would make children too sad, particularly white children. We're not going to talk about these things. And what's happening is, is that people are not willing to run for school board. School board members are being assaulted, literally and figuratively, their homes are picketed. They're refusing to run for re-election because they get death threats. So what we have is the conservatives have long, long since, long, long since decided that public education was a bad idea. And now we have a real assault. And every time the COVID goes up and we have a chance of maybe having to go back to putting masks back on in schools and having more testing, more parents are convinced by the right wing that you don't need testing and you don't need vaccination, and now they want to leave the schools. Also, homeschooling is on an increase. This is where you decide what your children will learn about. Oh, my God. So that's where we are. Right. Uh, quite something. We'll have to continue this discussion. And Jackie liked me a whole segment on that. But Dr. Gerald Horn, you'll have the last word here on the Ukraine and anything else that you might want to add, Dr. Horn. Well, with regard to Ukraine, it's not only Turkey that's objecting to the uh, ascension to NATO of the Finns and the Swedes, 
But keep in mind that the United States will be constrained in cutting a deal with Turkey to get its assent because the Greeks are hotly opposed to any concessions to Turkey. And in fact, the Greek prime minister addressed Congress earlier this week. I should also mention with regard to this dissent, not receiving much attention is the fact that Armenia, which as you know, has a strong diaspora in Southern California and Glendale in particular, uh, has not acceded to sanctions against Russia. In fact, Armenia sees itself as a victim because the drones that Turkey has been selling to Ukraine that have been quite effective in beating back the Russians, the Armenians were used as guinea pigs for the trying out of those drones and their conflict with neighboring Azerbaijan in the last year or so. Uh, what listeners need to realize is that not only is the North Atlantic community, community consolidating, not only under the aegis of NATO, but also you're having a gradual reconciliation between the European Union and the United States of America. Recall that Mr. Trump used to speak of the EU as second to China as an antagonist to the United States of America, but yet you have the rise of this so-called Trade and Technology Council, which met in France, which is seeking to smooth out the contradictions and fissures between Washington and Brussels. But at the same time, you have an opposing bloc that is arising. You have the so-called CSTO, the Collective, Collective Security Treaty Organization, led by Moscow, which has been meeting regularly lately with the Shanghai Cooperation Organization led by Beijing, and indeed with Mr. Biden in Northeast Asia and South Korea as we speak, you see that the second stage of this new Cold War is beginning to unfold with an attempt to organize and arrange a bloc that will be confronting the People's Republic of China. At the same time, you see a bit of wobbliness with regard to Germany. In two recent elections, the Social Democrats, the party of Chancellor Schultz, did not do very well. At the same time, there might even be wobbliness in terms of the U.S. ruling class. In the Financial Times of London just a few days ago, Anne-Marie Slaughter, who is a well-known yeah. former State Department official, uh, objected to certain aspects of U.S. policy towards Ukraine. And I guess I'll leave it there. Right. Yes, uh, Dr. Horn, I know you have a lot more to say. They'll have other opportunities to carry on here. Thank all of our panelists. We are out of time. Another fascinating roundtable. Today's show produced by me. That's Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank our engineer today, Wendell Hardy, our assistant producer, Alicia Vargas. Sojourner Truth will be back on the air on Tuesday. I hope that many of you will join me and others with California Poor People's Campaign. We're doing a screening of part one of King, a filmed record this coming Sunday at four o'clock. The actor and activist Danny Glover will be joining us for comments. We're trying to raise funds to get impoverished people to the June 18th event, mass event in Washington, D.C., called by the Poor People's Campaign. So go to the Poor People's California PPC Facebook page uh, to get information and hope you will join us. And I hope you all get to do something really nice this weekend and stay well and safe. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for Democracy Now! This is your host, Margaret Prescott.